right. to 1952,000 in a year, in the face of 5% interest rates, in the face of not just interest rates, but monetary tightening generally, is astonishing, frankly. It's very good performance, and we know why. It's Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Welcome back to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Benjamin Vern Nadelstein. I'm joined today by Adrian Day. Adrian, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing fine, thank you. How are you? Great, Adrian. Tell us a little bit about who you are in case someone on the planet doesn't know you. I was going to say, who am I talking to here? Um, No, I'm joking. Uh, Well, Adrian Day, I have my own money management firm. We've been doing it for 40 years, and we invest in both um, global markets and and resources. And I also manage Peter Schiff's Euro-Pacific Gold Fund. Adrian, at 5% interest rates, many commentators have said it would be like a nuclear bomb on stock markets, it would be a financial explosion like the world's never seen, and yet things seem to be okay. What is your analysis? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, first of all, a, a step back. Investors generally, we always expect things to happen in a much more dramatic fashion and much sooner, mm. but in fact, they do happen. Five, five and a half, in fact, five and a half percent interest rates, in fact, will have an effect on the economy. Mm. But it's not surprising to me that it hasn't happened yet. Um, I think there's a lot of resilience in the economy. You know, when you think that we had, when you think that we had um, ultra low, ultra excessive monetary policy and excessively low interest rates for so long, basically for 12 or 11 years before, 12 years before um, they started hiking, that gave households and corporations all the opportunity in the world to refinance, to refinance at lower rates, but also to term out their debt for longer. And so it's not surprising that rates have gone from zero lower bound to five and a half, and it hasn't had such a dramatic, such a dramatic effect on the economy yet, because for the most part, people have strong balance, households had strong balances, corporations certainly had strong balances, and people have termed out the debt. So the company, the corporation, for example, who let's say three years ago uh, refinanced all their debt, paid off all their existing debt, and then got new five-year loans at 3%, they haven't been affected yet. They haven't been affected. So the higher for longer mantra of of Powell, to me, is much more significant than whether they do another hike or not. So let's see if I can summarize. There's balance sheets that are actually doing quite well because of this lower interest rate policy. They could refinance, they could kind of shore up their balance sheets, and the debt is a little bit longer term duration. So a 5% nominal print, that's probably not going to do much. Now, higher for longer, that's a different discussion. Exactly. And so if you look at the, uh, if you look at the absolute number of, of corporate maturities this year, next year, and then mm. t- 25, you see that 25 is more than double what it is this year. Mm. I can't remember the absolute numbers. I'm sorry. I think it's 600 billion, but I don't want to say in case it's wrong. Well, I just said it. <laughs> um, but, but the point is, um, next year, the number of debt maturities of corporations goes up by about 50%, and then the year after that is up another 50%. Mm. So those are the two important years. 
And so do you see a scenario where we're at five or five and a half percent interest rates in two years from now? No. No, because something will have broken by then. I mean, we already had the banking crisis earlier, of course, but I think if we keep rates at five and a half percent for very much longer, as the, as the economy starts to move into a recession, that's going to cause more damage. So I don't think, I don't think they can keep rates here for two years, no. And now let's talk about some assets here. Let's start with gold. Gold has held up surprisingly well. Many analysts had said five and a half interest rates would be a headwind against gold. They said that gold would actually falter because most people would say, why would I buy a shiny pet rock when I could earn five and a half percent on a T-bill or a money market? Are you surprised at how well gold has held up or are you certain that this is part of your analysis? No, I'm I mean, you make a, you make really interesting points, and I mean, one thing I'll say is that again, it gets back to what I said earlier. Gold investors, in particular, they're always disappointed by gold. They always mm. expect more from gold. <laughs> right. But a year ago, we were just a little over sixteen hundred. Yes. So to go from sixteen hundred to, you know, whatever it is, almost nineteen eighty, it changes yeah. every day. But <laughs> right. to nineteen fifty two thousand in a year, in the face of five percent interest rates in the face of not just interest rates, but monetary tightening generally, is astonishing, frankly. It's very good performance, and we know why. It's, it's all, never say all, but it's primarily due to central bank buying. Okay. Because ETFs, of course, have had, we see the numbers, ETFs have had massive outflows, uh, apart from a couple of months earlier this year, um, February, March, it's been for 12 months, it's been net outflows and accelerating net outflows from the ETFs. So that's not where the support's coming from. I was just talking to a dealer, I don't know what your experience has been, but he said that they're certainly not getting, they're certainly not getting a wave in of the United buying States, yes, in the United States. And you can tell that, you know, the evidence is, is less firm and more anecdotal, but you can tell that in the premiums, the premiums have come down. So it's not the retail person who's supporting gold. So who's supporting gold? I think it's primarily the central banks, and then it's also uh, very wealthy individuals and institutions in Europe, but mostly in the Middle East and Asia, who are buying physical. Let's talk about the rest of the world. We have a very US-centric focused uh, investors and, and a lot of monetary policy focuses on the Fed and the United States. But let's talk about the rest of the world for a little bit. There are some analysts who say the US has the strongest economy. There's really no point in looking anywhere else. And if you're looking at the rest of the world, you're essentially just burning your dollars, throwing them down a pit you'll never see ever again. Do you see how that analysis makes sense and the US no. <laughs> economy is important or should we be looking elsewhere as well? Of course it of course it doesn't make sense. Um, you know, the US, it varies, but you know, it's 50% of, of the global economy and it's 50% of global stock markets. But if you ignore the rest of the world, you're ignoring half of the opportunities out there. Mm. And if you think the US is and has been the strongest economy for a long period of time, then by its nature, if you avoid the rest of the world, you're avoiding some of the best opportunities that are out there. Maybe more risky opportunities, but best. I mean, I remember, you know, um, Warren Buffett, who's this, I have a love-hate relationship with Warren As Buffett. As do I. Yeah. Because he does say some wonderful things, you know, that although that, that um, you know, farmer wisdom gets a little bit 
that shtick gets a little bit old after a while. But I mean, there's no gain saying he's done very well. But but my point is when he says, oh, just look at the US, which he's, he's, he's ignored his own advice recently, of course. But I mean, I say to people, well, in that case, why don't I just look at investment opportunities in Puerto Rico? Because I know those better than I know California. So let's just stick to our home state. The logic is exactly the same. Mm. And there's, forget, for, let's forget Puerto Rico for a second, but if you're in California, you could argue there's plenty of opportunities in California. That's a great point. So it, it just, it, it, it's a nonsensical argument. I think it's a mistake. And of course, we all know if we study history, we all know that even though the US has been dominant since the Second World War, there have been long periods when, when, when foreign markets have outperformed the US dramatically over a period of years. I mean, think of John Templeton, who in my mind is the greatest investor ever. His Templeton fund um, could move anywhere they wanted, but he, he, once was, he once was as high as 90% in Japan, and that was for multiple years. Um, my, my point being is that there's, there's, there's good opportunities everywhere. Sometimes the U.S. is the best place to invest. Sometimes it's not. And, and I do like that point because if we're just simply going on what we know best or, or what feels closest to home, you should invest in your hometown. I mean, you should be well, looking around, sure. you know, in eyesight. But clearly there's other opportunities. And, and like you're mentioning, the difference between safety and return is a spectrum. Right, of course, of course. And it's a matter of risk reward, isn't it? It's a matter of risk reward. Now, there are some people <clears throat> at a certain age or whatever, there are some people who simply cannot take, let's say, X amount of risk, regardless of the reward potential. They simply can't justify that. But for most investors, it really is a balance. What's the risk? What's the reward? And this risk, albeit higher risk, the potential is so much greater that this one is a better a better risk reward. Now I have a question. We've talked a little bit about gold. We've talked a bit about foreign currencies, and we've talked a bit about central banks buying gold. Do you see that other central banks are doing something different than the U.S. is doing? Should we be looking at, for example, Japan and yield curve control, oh the gosh. Chinese and the yuan? Please not. <laughs> um, well, there's certainly some central banks that are doing better than others. I'll, 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 I'll paraphrase, I can't quote him, but I'll paraphrase the presidential nominee in Argentina, Mil Millet. Millet, yes. I don't know his first name. Javier. Javier, thank you. Javier Millet. He says that all central banks are bad, uh, the Federal Reserve is really bad, and the Argentine central bank is plain evil. So I would, I would say that all central banks are bad in the sense that I think the whole theory of a central bank is wrong, is in error. But within the construct of having central banks, there are certainly some that are doing a far more, uh, a far better job. Singapore would be one. I wouldn't point Japan up as an example. You were joking, of course. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> well, I was about to take the mic off and walk off. I was about um, to have this tight, very, very tight, be tight around my yeah. neck. And, you know, unfortunately, Swiss National Bank used to be an extraordinary solid central bank. Hasn't been for 10 years. You know, they've turned into a hedge fund, basically. Um, but there are some... Bank of England is useless. They have been for 10 years. I always thought, growing up, I always thought they were an institution to look up to. Maybe I was naive at the time. 
Now, question for you. There seems to be a lot of dead ends here. We've talked about, well, you know, this currency or this country might not be the next place to invest. What are some, some underappreciated investments or different areas to invest? Gosh, that's a good a good example. Well, I'm um, a good question. I mean, I do think I do think that the best risk reward is the gold stocks. That's mm. not exactly under under recognized. You know, typically, my macro view is we're moving into a into a stagflation. Okay. You know, I think we're going to move into a recession or or sluggish economy before the Fed has quashed and and other central banks have quashed inflation. Hmm. So we're going to have a stagflation. In a stagflation, one of the top performing, uh, one of the top performing assets are emerging market uh, stocks and bonds. Hmm. And really, it's smaller markets, not just emerging markets, but smaller market. The problem is they tend to do well when the dollar is falling. And so at the moment, we're moving into a stagflationary period when they should be doing well, but the dollar has been very strong. Right. And that's that's on balance, that's negative for smaller markets because so many in the smaller markets, so many corporations will take US dollar debt out, um, you know, because to, to borrow money in the local, in the BART or whatever, is just too expensive. And of course, they're getting crushed as the dollar goes up. If you start to see, sorry, just to finish your thought, if we start to see the dollar go down, if, I'm just saying, if we start to see the dollar go down, then I think we should start to look at some smaller markets in, in a broad sense. But without that, I'm being very, very, um, very selective, very bottom up, frankly, very idiosyncratic. So we have investments in, you know, Singapore, we have investments in um, Malaysia, we have investments in Argentina. Um, that's a shorter term speculation, um, but I don't have much in the in the emerging in the major markets at the moment. Now, one of our final questions here: Who are you reading? What do you follow? What are some books or analysis that oh. you like to read to really keep yourself informed and that have influenced your analysis? Oh gosh. Well, in terms of books, that's not. I'll come to that one first. I mean, I think the Money Masters book was a classic. I've forgotten who wrote it, John someone. But it, people can look it up in Amazon. There's multiple editions of it. I think the first one is the best. A Money Masters simply looks at some of the, some of the most successful money managers and what, what their style is. And the beauty of that book is it, it shows you, it demonstrates clearly that there's more than, oh, I mustn't say more than one way to skin a cat because my daughter doesn't like me saying that. There's, there's... One way, more than one way to skin a carrot. Peel a carrot. There's there more than one way to peel a carrot. Um, you know, because you see all these successful investors and, and each one has a different uh, approach. And the lesson that I got from that book, frankly, is, you know, don't try to be all things and do all things. If you truly are, a, I don't mean be stubborn, but if you're a value investor and you're buying undervalued assets that you spent a lot of time researching and you know this is a good asset that's undervalued, well, don't suddenly become a, a, a trend follower when it drops 5%. Because if you're a value investor, a 5% drop is meaningless. Similarly, if you're, if you're a momentum investor and the thing's the momentum stops going in the wrong way, 
don't say, oh, well, I think I'll hold it anyway because it's good value. I mean, stick to your discipline. Anyway, that's a book. In terms of, oh, I read Jim Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Um, uh, you know, so much nowadays is on Twitter, which I don't have. But so much now is, is stuff that somebody just sends you something. Oh, I saw this, I saw that. Jesse Felder I follow. Jesse Felder I think is very good. He does have a free, um, a, a free sort of subscription, which is a weekly where he just sort of condenses basically some of the best things he's seen during the week, which I find very, very helpful. But his premium or whatever he calls it, the paid subscription is absolutely well worth getting. That's Jesse Felder. Um, but there's lots of them. I mean, now I listen to a lot of interviews, so I follow what Brent Johnson at this show says very clearly. Oh, I subscribe to Peter Bookbar. And that is a, I mean, my gosh, I, I, I don't know what I should say because I might have a special deal. I mean, I'm paying $100 a year, maybe because I used to get it for free, so the people who got it for free, you know, he's bumping us up slowly. But I mean, that's just so ridiculous, you know. I mean, $100, you can't even get a hotel room for that. And Peter Bukvar is just He's one great. of the smartest, awesome. most insightful. So I get that and I read every post he does, yeah. And now, when people want to follow you, because we love your work and your analysis, where can people find more of your work? Yeah, the uh, website, is, well, the web, best website is www.adrianday.com. And when you go there, it'll tell you you want money management, you want a newsletter, because we have to keep them separate for security, you know, uh, compliance reasons. But it's got all my interviews and you know articles I've written and so on and so forth. Adrian, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the Gold Exchange Podcast. We'll have to have you back soon. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions, and are gold financing simplified, reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.